beginning in verse 21. Luke 2, 21. I think we have 22 up on the board. We'll start at 21, just for the fuller context. And at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And when the time for their purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him, and it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him According to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and his mother marveled what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is to be opposed. The sword will pierce through your own soul also so that the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. And she was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at the very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Almighty God, we thank you once again for this privilege and honor we have to gather together and worship to lift up your holy name, O Lord. We now ask that you would illuminate the text before us, Holy Spirit, Give us insight and understanding to your word. We pray for the mind not only to understand, but the will to obey and to apply the text to our lives. May we be conformed to you, Christ, through this word today. We ask, O Lord, for your unction. Father, I pray that my mind and my heart and my lips would be anointed by your spirit, that you would use me to speak forth your word with clarity to declare the truth, to preach with conviction, to exhort, to encourage. Pray that the proud would be humbled and the humbled would be uh, encouraged. May you, O oh Lord, be glorified today in Jesus' name. Amen. Having a baby is a joyous occasion, particularly your firstborn. God had commanded us to be fruitful and multiply as one of the blessings, not only of being a human being, but particularly as a Christian, there's a special uh, idea about life. We cherish life, we cherish children, we cherish family. Um, you know, in the unbelieving secular world, when you're living in a godless world system, 
Um, everything that is sacred has been profaned. You know, we, we lose the concept of the family life and just simply move along as to pleasurable um, sexual encounters with other people. And when children don't fit into our agenda, we choose to abort and terminate the pregnancies. Um, unfortunately, the laws permit such actions. But clearly, people just move along and, and function as if everything is just a, 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 an exercise of pleasure or function of life. But as Christians, there's a sacredness to family because God had designed the family to be the center of, of creation. He created Adam and Eve, and, and, and in that creation, he didn't create one without the other, but he created them together as the first family, and through that family, the foundation of human society, but sin corrupts and destroys but there's nothing more delightful and joyful than having a baby. That first time you have a baby and you hold that little child in your arms, it just does something to your heart and to your mind as you, you look at this creation of God um, and you see this child part you, part your spouse, and, and ultimately God gives the spirit, and it's a joy. And so when people have children, what do they do? They celebrate. They celebrate. They have parties. They want to share that joy with their family and friends. And for those who are of faith, there is a time, a religious aspect to it, where we consecrate our children to God. Now, among Christians, there are many who baptize their infants when they're born. Many uh, people in mainstream Protestantism uh, remain still baptize their infants um, in accordance with the tradition of the Church of Rome, um, but obviously with a different concept uh, as as Baptists, we know that baptism, we believe and are committed to the belief that believers' baptism is biblical, that one is baptized after they confess faith in Christ as a sign that a work has been done in their heart. We believe that's biblical, we believe it's true, which is why we don't baptize our infants, as nice as that would be, and as much as there would be a, a sense of consecration, we opt for the substitution of child dedications and Oftentimes, you'll see where parents will come to me and they'll say, can we dedicate our baby to the Lord? And I'll often say, yes, we could do that, but it's more a parent dedication. We're, we're calling the parents to commit themselves in covenant to raise this child in the fear and admonition of the Lord. But in ancient Israel, there was no discussion or debate. If you had a male child, um, after eight days, the law of God required you to circumcise the firstborn male in your home. This was an important ceremony for the Jewish people, not only because it was commanded, but it was a sign of the covenant that God made with Abraham. Uh, when God uh, covenanted with Abraham back in Genesis 12 and then 15 and 17, uh, particularly in chapter 17, God commanded Abraham that him and his whole family should be circumcised as a sign of a covenant of the promise that God made with him. And that, that sign symbolized life because it was through the seed of Abraham that all the nations would be blessed and um, the physical part of the body that was circumcised was consecrated, set apart, which symbolized where the seed of uh, uh, came from. And so with that said, it was expected of Jewish families to baptize, I'm uh, not baptized, but circumcise their sons, their, all of their male children. And of course, of the firstborn male, as we'll see, there was also a presentation that indicated that the male child was separated from the pagan world and it also was a symbol of the promise 
God made through Israel that one day a seed would come who would bless the whole world. And ironically, as Jesus was circumcised, he was the seed. He was the fulfillment of that promised Abraham. He would be the one to come and to bring blessing to all the world. So then the question is, why would Jesus even need to be baptized? If he's the son of God, what, I mean, not baptized, but circumcised, what would be the necessity of that? And, and the truth of the matter is, is that the circumcision was to keep with the fulfillment of the law. Galatians 4, 4, 4 through 5 says, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoptions as sons. It was necessary that Christ fulfill all of the law of God to fulfill the righteousness of God, that he would be, there would be no sin, no failure, there would be no blemish in his life, but there would be a perfect record of obedience. And so in the fulfillment of the law, and Christ's whole life fulfills the law, the circumcision was necessary. Five weeks later, they would return to the temple, the family, and they would return for two reasons. Number one would be for purification. Again, we see everything is according to the law, and Luke makes that very clear in verse 23, as is written in the law of the Lord, that the first male who opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. That comes out of Leviticus 12, 1 through 4. So there were two things going on. When a woman had a child, she would be unclean. She would be ceremonially unclean for 40 days and not allowed to enter into the temple of God until she first offered sacrifices for her purification. So that was the first reason they went. Mary needed to fulfill the law of God in fulfilling her, law, her ritual of purification, uh, but was also to present the Lord Jesus, the baby Jesus, before God as and consecrate him. You see in Exodus 13, 2, it says, whoever is the first to open the womb is mine. Going back to the Passover, if you remember when God delivered uh, Israel out of Egypt, how did he do it? Well, the tenth and horrible plague was that the firstborn of Egypt, every single one of them was struck dead, the firstborn male. And as a result, there was great horror in Egypt, and that was the, that was the final straw. Pharaoh says, okay, Moses, get out of here, you and your people. He was broken. His son was killed, his firstborn son. Now, if you remember correctly, uh, the angel of death passed over the houses of the Israelites, of those who put blood over the doorpost of their home. It symbolized that they were uh, covered by the blood, that, that the angel would pass over. Substitution had been made. There was a death in place of the firstborn and that was uh, the sacrifice of the lamb. And so uh, with that said, God had commanded Israel, whoever is the firstborn to, to come out of a, a woman, whoever is the first to, to come out of the womb must be set apart for God. Just as the firstborn of Egypt is mine, he's saying the firstborn of your children is mine. But I don't require their life. Instead, you offer a sacrifice in substitution for. And so you would come and it required that a lamb would be brought and a lamb would be slaughtered and that lamb would be the substitutionary sacrifice uh, uh, in place of the firstborn child. And this is the beautiful thing here. Christ is presented before God and his parents are so poor they can't even offer a lamb and 
If, they, if you were poor enough in Israel that you could not afford a lamb, uh, two turtle doves would be sufficient. And here we see the Son of God coming from this impoverished family who can't even afford a baby lamb for the presentation sacrifice. And he is the one who would ultimately be the Lamb of God who would bear the sins of the world. Mary was being, uh, in her purification, was being purified under the concept of the law because through childbirth, original sin in the baby would defile the woman. But Christ is sinless. Christ is sinless. And so there was no defilement. Christ is the one in whom all these things are pointing is the sinless Lamb of God who comes into the world. And all these rituals are taking place to fulfill the law, but Christ would be the ultimate fulfillment of it as the Passover Lamb of God. And so we see in these opening verses this 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 Jewish worship, this aspect of, of uh, biblical worship of Mary and Joseph and, and presenting the Lord Jesus is, 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 it paints a picture of the gospel and is pointing uh, us to who Christ would ultimately uh, be and how he would fulfill the word of God. However, in this event where they're at the temple, and they're presenting Christ, two Old Testament saints come their way. And these two Old Testament saints have a lot to say, and, and God directs them in the path of Mary and Joseph and the baby Jesus, and, and through them confirms the purpose of God for Jesus Christ. And it's in this we look at these two individuals, Simeon and Anna, as examples Godly examples of Old Testament saints, some of the last of the Old Testament saints who would behold the baby Jesus and God would reveal to them that this indeed was the Messiah and how they responded and what they said would have a great impact on Mary and Joseph. And so here this poor couple from uh, Nazareth is here. They're fulfilling their religious duties and and in their poverty and in, in even in their sense of uh, apprehension of, of their raising the Son of God, the Messiah, here come these two elderly saints to bring encouragement to them, to celebrate with them. And so we're going to look at these two saints and what some implications we could bring out of it. Number one, let's look at Simeon, verse uh, 25. Verse 25 tells us there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and he was a righteous and devout man waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. Now, we don't know much about Simeon. We don't know if he was a priest. We don't know uh, how old he was, although there's an assumption here that he was an older man uh, based on the fact that it appears he's been waiting for quite some time uh, for the promise of God to be fulfilled in his life. Um, but we, we are told about his character, and we're told three things about him. He's righteous and devout. And he's, a, he's a waiting uh, upon the Lord. He's waiting upon the Lord for the consolation of Israel. And that phrase there, consolation of Israel, um, is another title for who Christ is, the consolation of Israel. He is the one who brings comfort. Um, if we go back to Isaiah chapter 40, verse 1, um, when the Isaiah prophecy speaking of the coming Messiah, uh, what does Isaiah say? Comfort, comfort, my people, says your God speak tenderly to Jerusalem. It opens up the messianic chapters. The, messianic, the Messiah comes to bring comfort and consolation to his people, and that is through salvation 
and redemption. And so it was at this time where um, Simeon, he's righteous, he's devout, and he is, and more importantly, he's a spiritual man. He's a spiritual man. Um, he's filled with the Holy Spirit. Three times references made to the Holy Spirit here, saying he would not see death until he saw the Messiah. There was a special revelation given by the Spirit. It says he was filled with the Holy Spirit. Um, and ultimately, he came in the Spirit into the temple. The Spirit, by providence, directed him to where Mary and Joseph were. And, and so we see that this is a godly man. Um, interesting word here also is the word uh, devout. It's, it's where we get the English word pious from. The word eulabes in Greek means literally to take hold of. Uh, Vine's dictionary says to be conscious of and aware of God's presence and lay hold of it. This was a man who, who was taking hold of God, laying hold of his promises, who was walking in the spirit. And God had promised him, God had made a promise to him that he would not see death. He would not see death until he saw the consolation of Israel, until he had seen the Lord's Christ, the Messiah. And so verse 27 tells us he came in the spirit into the temple. It was by the providence and sovereign um, purpose of God that he was drawn. You ever notice that sometimes? When you're walking in the spirit, God directs your steps. You ever notice sometimes providentially you're in the right time at the right place. You're like, how did I get here? Of all the odds that I met this person at this particular time. That's how the spirit of God works. You can't plan it better. God plans it better than we can. You know, sometimes you go through life and you think things are coincidental. Nothing is coincidental. The righteous steps of a man are ordered by God. It tells us the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from God. In other words, as you go through life, understand that nothing is through happenstance. Nothing is through coincidence, but God is directing you. And the more you're in the spirit, the more you're going to be directed into the will of God and the purposes of God and the good of God. You know, it's important that we're in the spirit so that we are in God's will and purpose and doing the things that he would want us to do. In this particular point, God had promised I was, he was going to see the Messiah before he died, and God kept his promise. God kept his promise. He comes into the temple, and it says he saw the baby Jesus. And he came in the spirit to the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. Praise the Lord. He grabs, holds the baby Jesus and blesses God. He, he praises God. Says, now I could die finally in peace. You fulfilled your word. And he says, my eyes have seen your salvation. My eyes have seen your salvation. This was a man who not only received revelation that he would see the Messiah, but understood the purpose of Messiah, that the purpose was to come and to seek and save the lost. Remember earlier, back in verse 21, the baby was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived by womb. And the name Jesus means God saves. Christ had been sent to this world to bring salvation. 
and not just for Israel, but notice what it says in verse 20, you prepared in the presence of all peoples a light of revelation to the Gentiles. He's prophesying. And this, song, this, by the way, is another song. As we've been in the Gospel of Luke the past few chapters, we noticed uh, of a, a, a series of worship songs, a series of, if you will, Christmas carols, uh, songs celebrating the birth of Christ. First was the, the song of Zechariah, the Benedictus. And then we also get to the song of Mary. When, when Mary burst out in, in praise, it was uh, um, Mary's Magnificat. She magnified the Lord or, or the song of the angels before the shepherds. That was the uh, uh, inglorious, in excelsis gloria. It was uh, the glory to God in the highest. They were the myriads of angels singing. And now even in the presentation of temple, we see this man, Simeon, this elderly man, bursting out in praise to God with another song. And this song is called the Nunc Dimittis in Latin, which is for the first two words now, which is uh, Nunc and Dimittis, let your servant depart in peace. The phrase servant there literally means slave. It indicates the language there of a slave who's been waiting for a long time to do his master's will. And at last, that which the master had uh, told him to wait for has come to pass, and he is free. He is free from this waiting period, and he rejoices in God, his salvation. He sees Christ, and he sees that God has sent him to be a salvation, not just to Israel, but to all the world. And so in this Nunc Dimittis, we now know that Simeon, saw the Messiah, and he's ready to die. I want you to think about a few things. He saw the baby Jesus, and he was ready to die. I want you to realize something, that until you see Jesus, you are not ready to die. And what do I mean by that? I'm not talking about the infant Jesus. I'm not talking about Christmas here. What I am talking about is until you behold Jesus with the eyes of faith until you see the glory of Christ in the face of Jesus Christ. Listen to 2 Corinthians 4, 3 through 4. Even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the mind of unbelievers to keep them from what? seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. In other words, you cannot leave this world. You cannot die until you see Jesus. Until you see that he is the son of God, that he came not only into this world to be born uh, in humiliation, but he lived for you. He lived a perfect life of righteousness. He died on the cross to satisfy the justice of God, to bear our sins, and was risen from the dead, until you see that and believe that, you're not ready to die. You should not, and you cannot, you ought not to leave this world until you have seen the Christ. And say, but Bob, I haven't seen it yet. I don't see it. You see it. Other people here see it. I don't see it. Pray to God that he would open your eyes. Lord, 
God, open my eyes. I want to see. I don't get it. I don't know why everyone else sees this and I don't see it. I'll never forget years ago when I got baptized, there was a guy who got baptized with me and we were standing uh, before a, a pastor a few years later. He's like, I don't get it. Bob sees it, but I don't see it. I don't see the life. I can't see uh, following Jesus. That's because unless God opens your eyes, you cannot see. We are blind, blinded by sin, blinded by Satan, blinded by this world, and our eyes must be open, the spiritual eyes of our heart. Until you see Christ beyond the manger, beyond the Christmas uh, narrative, beyond the nativity, until you see Christ crucified and raised from the dead, you're not ready to leave this world. And so we see the response of Mary and Joseph. He tells us in verse 33, his father, his mother marveled at what was said about him. Put yourself in their shoes, right? I mean, you've already experienced some, some really amazing stuff, right? Uh, I mean, the angel Gabriel visiting Mary, then Joseph, um, the whole process of the, of the, of the, of the uh, um, gestation of Christ, the birth of Christ, the miracle of the, of the shepherds who saw the angels who came to visit them. I mean, all of these things. Remember, Mary's treasuring these things in her heart, and she's, she's seeing all this. And now, here they are in the temple, and this elderly saint, this man, comes to them with a prophecy. Uh, uh, you can't imagine how, how they are responding. It says they marvel. This was marvelous. It's amazing. When was the last time you were amazed? When was the last time you marveled? And I tell you, every time the gospel is preached, it's something marvelous. Every time the word of God is delivered us, when we lose our sense of joy over the word of God, it's become because we've been dulled by the things of this world. We need, we need to have more of a sense of, of appreciation and amazement for the things of God. It says in verse 34, now Simeon turns around, he blessed God. Now he blessed this the parents. He blessed them and said to Mary, his mother. Now imagine, he, he, he directs his gaze right at Mary. And he says, behold, it's a prophetic word now. This child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed and a sword will pierce through your own soul also so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. In the amazement and the joy of all that they're experiencing comes a thrust of a sword into Mary's heart. This was not a word that was to uh, prepare her for better days to come. It was preparing her for the worst. It was preparing her for the truth that Christ came to this world for the purpose to die. And in that text there, he's saying that, that Christ is going to be a sign to be opposed. He is going to face significant opposition. He would come to his own and his own would receive him not. He would find rejection from the Jewish people. He'd find opposition several times in his public ministry um, he would, they would seek to kill him, to throw him off of a cliff, to stone him. But ultimately, it wasn't the Lord's will until he was crucified. It says that he would, he would be appointed. He's appointed by God the Father for the fall and rising of many in Israel. Isn't that the truth? Christ came not to unite, but to divide. The nation of Israel, ethnic Israel, was divided. There were those who were God's elect. There were those who God was saving, a remnant. There were those who, who, when they saw Christ, they believed in him. They confessed him as Lord and they followed him. 
all in all, when Christ, after Christ was crucified and ascended to heaven, do you know how many Jewish people in the land of Israel actually came to faith in Christ? 120 people. There are only 120 people in the church. There may have been more in the outskirts, but for those who were in the upper room in the book of Acts, it was 120. You know, if we were to evaluate the success of Christ's public ministry, we would probably, according to today's standards, we would say, well, maybe he's not meeting the heartfelt needs of the people today. Maybe he's not, maybe he's got to adjust his preaching and teaching to be more accommodating to the culture. Oh, he's not quite understanding of where people are at. He's not sensitive enough to think about the context of, of the people who are suffering great oppression from the Roman Empire. Rubbish! Christ preached, and he preached the truth, and that's why he was divisive. That's why he was appointed for some who would rise and who would embrace him and embrace the mission of Messiah, embrace the message of the gospel, and there would be a great number of people a massive amount, the majority of people would reject him. The majority of people, when it came down to choosing between him and a criminal like Barabbas, said, give us Barabbas and crucify him. Crucify him. Let his blood be on us and our ancestors. It was the Jewish people who, through all of Christ's public ministry, who, who healed the sick and raised the dead and, and did so many marvelous and miraculous things. And yet... They could not see beyond their own political ambitions. We want to be liberated. You see, they were too stuck in the grievances of the here and now. They were stuck in the grievances of, oh, we're under Roman oppression. We want liberation. We want a Messiah who's going to give us our national identity. We want a Messiah who's going to focus on the here and now and our power in this world. And Jesus said, no, I'm not here for that. I'm here to save men's souls. And so all the Jewish leaders, what they say? Well, we want nothing to do with you then. It, as far as they were concerned, Jesus was a traitor. As far as they were concerned, Jesus was disloyal to the Jewish nation. As far as they were concerned, Jesus was not a patriot. But Jesus didn't come here to fulfill the dreams and desires of men. He came here to save and seek the lost. Amen. And, this, and, and by the way, the message of the gospel has not changed. God does not care, you know, the, 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 the rising and falling of nations, whether it's America or England. You know how many nations have been in, in the spotlight in history and they've collapsed? God raises nations up, he brings them low. We happen to live in the United States of America. I thank God for that. I pray, we should pray for this nation, seek the welfare of this nation, but ultimately... Let us not be like the Jews who were so caught up in their national pride that they missed the bigger picture of what the gospel is about. And so Simeon blessed them. And he says to them, says to her, a sword will pierce through your own soul also. Clearly this is foreshadowing the crucifixion. You know, I think there's nothing worse that a parent can experience than to outlive their child. I have seen parents who've buried their kids. It is the most excruciating, painful uh, thing a parent can go through. I remember when Richie's mom had to bury John, how that just, just all the pain that caused her. I remember when 
when the Contreras had to bury Julian, all the pain that caused them. Burying a child is the worst thing. One can't imagine how Mary, who raised Jesus from when he was an infant, who weaned him, who taught him how to walk, who taught him how to read, who, who, who watched him as he, as he dwelt among his brothers and sisters, who, who lived in, in Nazareth, who, who was a carpenter, who took care of the family after Joseph died, who was, a, who was a good man, who was a godly man, who was a righteous man, who was the son of God, and how to see him once be rejected, to see the rejection must have been painful enough for Mary. Right? Nobody wants to see their kid be bullied in school or rejected by their peers. But imagine what Mary had to think when she saw Christ being rejected those three years of ministry, but then to see her son hang on a cross, to see the nails be driven through his hands, that dri- driven through his feet as he screamed in blood-curdling agony on the cross. And it says it was like a sword thrust through Mary. The agony she would endure one day would indeed be a sword through her own gut. Because Christ came to this world not to be the Messiah that the people wanted, but the Messiah that God wanted. And so they took this to heart. Now we're finally look at Anna, verse Anna, it says here, was a prophetess, the daughter of Phanuel. And she was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years and when she was a virgin, and then she was a widow until 84. So here was this woman for probably most of her life was a widow. But notice what it says about her. She did not depart from the temple, and she worshiped with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming upon that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. Somehow Anna was caught up in this. Here's Mary and Joseph and Simeon, and Simeon's bursting out in this song. And, and Anna's there because guess what? Anna's in the temple all the time. After her husband died, she just dedicated herself, I'm going to be in the house of God every day. And she devoted her life to fasting and prayer. This was a woman devoted and committed to God. She was committed to the house of God. I remember when I first got saved, when I first became a Christian at 19 years old, I remember going to church was a solace for me. Coming to church on Sunday morning was such an encouragement, such a solace, I hated going home on Sundays. So back then we had Pentecostal service. I used to go to Pentecostal church. And it was a long day. We'd have a three-hour service. We'd go out to eat. Usually a group of us have lunch, take a nap. And then 6 o'clock was another service. And we'd go another two hours. And then we had midweek service. I was there every Wednesday. But then I was disappointed. I wanted more. So I would go to Times Square Church on Tuesday nights and Thursday nights. I wanted to be in the house of God all the time. That should be the desire of our heart. It should be the desire in the heart of every believer to love God's house. And I have found today we have become so individualistic and so selfish that we do not make our commitment to the local church a priority. Ah, today's a little snowflakes and some have found it not easy to get here. That's one thing. But I have found that for so many Christians, their commitment to the local church is dependent on convenience and depending on their feelings rather than depending on their love for God. When the love of God waxes cold, 
being in the house of God becomes a burden. It becomes a chore. But when the love of God is, is bursting in our lives, we delight to be in God's house, to hear God's words, to be around his people. We have to be very careful. The Bible tells us in Hebrews 10, 25, do not neglect to meet together as a habit of some, but encourage one another the more you see the day drawing near. And I tell you, the day is getting near. This woman was an evangelist. She went around telling everybody, all those who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. And so we end with this Simeon and Anna who were likely most seen as fanatics. These are the religious fanatics. They're in the temple all the time. They're talking about the coming of Messiah. Oh, don't listen to them. But God showed favor to them. He showed favor to them. They were waiting for the consolation of, of Israel, the redemption of Jerusalem. And God set them apart and he revealed Christ to them and gave them peace in their old life. They would never live long enough to see Christ preach. They would never live long enough to see him heal. They would never live long enough to behold the resurrection from the dead. But they believed in the Lord Jesus even at that point and were saved and went to heaven in peace. But what is... The lesson here, what could we learn from all this? Well, there's a few things I'd like to point out. The most important thing I want us to see is that just as Anna and Simeon waited patiently for the coming of Messiah in his first advent, the reality is that we likewise are waiting. We're waiting too. In fact, the church has been waiting ever since Christ ascended to heaven, because in Acts chapter 1, when Christ went to heaven, the two angels say, see, just as Jesus is going to heaven, he will come back the same way. Christ promised he would return. He would not leave us as little orphans, but that he's coming back. And for 2,000 years, the church has been waiting. For Israel, it had been 400 years since the prophet spoke, which was a long time. For us, it's been 2,000 years since Christ was here and he promised he would come back. He promised he would come back, not this time to, for salvation, uh, 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 to die on a cross, but this time to conquer the world, to destroy the works of evil and to establish his kingdom and righteousness on the earth, to bring an end to the, 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 the men of this world who, who posture themselves against God. And I want to tell you something that as Anna and as, and as Simeon were waiting patiently upon God, looking for the consolation of Israel, that we ought to live our lives in such a way that we are patiently waiting and looking for the second coming of Christ. We are living in dark times. I, I don't know about you, but I feel that in the last 10 years, I feel society's crumbling the world that I knew growing up is not the world I'm living in today. Just since the pandemic, so much has changed. There is just an evil darkness in the world today. I don't feel at home. I don't, I don't, things I once enjoyed, I don't enjoy. Something has changed. It's not just because I'm getting older, right? You know, remember our grandparents who say, oh, things were better in my days. I, there's part of that is an element of it. But I think there's also a sense where there's great evil like we've never seen in, 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 in generations. And that darkness should compel us. The oppression of this evil should compel us to desire and long for the coming of Christ. But not everybody longs for the coming of Christ. Why? Because 
While the coming of Christ means redemption and glory and joy for those who love Jesus, it also means doom, destruction, and the end of everything for those who love this world. That's why the Bible says you can't love this world and love God. For those who love this world, the love of the Father is not in them. 1 John 2, 15 through 17. The lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the pride of life. This is the world, not of God. If you have that love in you, if this is your love and you, I love this world, I love everything in it, then yes, the second coming of Christ is the worst thing you could possibly imagine. It's frightening, it's scary. You don't want Christ to come back, you'll ruin the party. But if you love Jesus and you love his kingdom, you love righteousness and you love goodness and you love purity, come Lord Jesus, come and clean this planet. Wipe the slate clean. Get the filth out of here. Rule, come and rule this world in righteousness. Listen to Titus 2, 11 through 14. Titus 2, 11 through 14. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. That, that's Christ. But now notice, notice the purpose of the coming of, of, of God's grace and salvation. To train us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. So there's a, a renouncing of this world. To live self controlled and upright and godly lives in this present evil age. God called us to renounce the, the, the evil, the ungodliness, the, the worldliness, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly in this present evil age. And here's the, here's the real point here, waiting, waiting for our blessed hope. That's what being a Christian is about. It's about waiting. It's about waiting for Christ, waiting for his second coming. Our whole life lived it is in wait, in blessed anticipation of our blessed hope. Notice the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. This is a training period. It's a waiting period. You know, we're... we're, we're Christ has promised he's coming back and there will be one generation in history that will be fortunate enough to behold that. And I pray that's us. And you should pray it too. So what are some things we could do while we're waiting? Should we just waste our time? Should we just fiddle around? Look at Facebook? Play video games? Go hang out? Maybe have a few drinks? No, that, that, that's not what we do while waiting. Luke chapter 12 uh, discusses that at length. I'm not going to go back, but in 12, 35 through 38, it discusses how there were people who, the servants of the master, the master went away and, and the servants said, oh, our master's not coming back. And they started to beat the other servants and drink and have fun. Well, he's not coming back anytime soon. Let's just do whatever we want. And when the master came back, it says he cut them in two and appointed them their place with the hypocrites. No, we wait the Lord with renouncing worldly passions, living upright lives, and waiting for our blessed hope. Look at Anna and Simeon. Look at a few things that they did. Number one, they were Simeon was righteous and devout. This is a man who lived his life upright and godly. They were committed to the house of God. They were in church all the time. They were in the temple all the time. As often as they could, they would meet together 
in the temple to worship and glorify God. They lived in the spirit. And they died to worldly passions like Anna. She fasted and prayed and abandoned her own worldly desires. Say, I'm a widow, I want to live it up. But she devoted herself to God. And so I question today, do you truly desire the second coming of Christ? Like, like there are certain things we plan for and look forward to in life. Like there are milestones, right? You look forward, when you're single, you look forward to meeting a spouse and get married. And then you get married and you look forward to having children. You have children. You look forward to them growing up and eventually you look forward to them going to college and then they get married and then they have grandchildren. These are all milestones. And you plan for your future and you plan for retirement. These are all goals. But there's one thing I'm really eagerly anticipating above all of that is I'm hoping Jesus comes back soon. What about you? I hope he comes back today. But just listen to what the New Testament says regarding the church's attitude towards the second coming. 1 Corinthians 16.22 says this, if anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. And the premise of that is, our Lord come, Maranatha. Hebrews 9.28 says this, so Christ having been offered once to bear the sins of many will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. 2 Timothy 4.8 says this, Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day. Paul's looking forward to the day when, when Christ returns, and not only for me also, but all who love his appearing. 1 Peter 1.13, set your hope fully on the grace that is coming to you in the revelation of Jesus Christ. 2 Peter 3.11 since all things are to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? Notice verse 12, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of the Lord. It's not just waiting for, but we're hastening. You know, like little kids, when Christmas is coming, they can't wait till Christmas morning comes. They can run to the tree and get those gifts. We're hastening. Come, Lord Jesus. 1 John 3, 2 through 3, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is, and everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself. And so we look forward to the second coming, because we'll be like Christ, free from sin, free from everything. Finally, in Revelation twenty two twenty, the last words of the Bible say this, Christ says, surely I am coming soon. And the Apostle John says, amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Let me conclude by saying this. Christ is coming back. And the Bible says it'll be a day and an hour where nobody knows. Like a, like a flash of lightning comes suddenly. You can't predict a flash of lightning, can you? Of course not. It occurs spontaneously, quickly, suddenly, flashes across the sky. You can't predict when the thief comes into your house. And Jesus says, so it is with the coming of the Son of Man. Nobody knows the day or hour. But we're to be prepared. We're to be ready. We're going to be looking forward to it. The question is, where will God find you on Judgment Day? Whether Christ comes for you in personal death 
I've heard a lot of people dying recently. It's amazing how many people have been dying around me lately. Heart attacks, sudden massive heart attacks, dying in their sleep, cancer. I hear about it left and right, not just old people, young people. If the Lord were to come for you in death or the Lord would come back to this world, how would he find you? Would he find you living in anticipation, in holiness, in righteousness, humility, loving and committed to the house of God? Would he find you in the flesh and in sin and in the world, just doing what you want? How would the Lord find you? And so with that said, I want to encourage you today that as we end this sermon, we're beginning a new year, 2024. Forget about yesterday, forget about last year, forget about all of the ways you were not living good for God. Today's a new day. And this is a new year. And we should renew our commitment. We could renew our hearts and renew our love for Jesus Christ. Get back to the basics. It's not rocket science here. Being your word, being the Bible, being prayer, fellowship with other Christians. Do not neglect the gathering of the saints. And that will foster more growth and desire and love. What's happened is so much as the world has clouded out and obscured the beauty of who Christ is and the purpose of what we're here for. I pray that this year would be, maybe this is the year Christ returns. We're all worried about an election in November. That's the news everybody's talking about. Maybe Christ is coming back and there is no election. Wouldn't that be joyful? But where will he find you? Put away the things of this world. Get rid of the distractions. Run the race. Fight the good fight. Today's, today's all we got, guys. Yesterday's history, tomorrow's a mystery. Today is the day of salvation. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you once again for this time together, for your word. We pray that you would open the eyes of our hearts to see Jesus. I pray that we would not leave this world until we've seen the glory of Messiah. I pray that you'd lift up our hearts. I pray that you would bind us together in unity and love for you and your kingdom. May you be glorified this day and this year. In Jesus' name, amen. Please stand as we sing.